So hello, hello, everyone. This is Chris Calvert, and you are in for a treat today because I am talking to Heather Riley, who is a chaplain. And Heather, I know personally, she is has now become a good friend of mine, and I'm so curious about her because she shows up in sometimes a police uniform and sometimes in just like regular clothes and sometimes in her sweats and her job is a chaplain. So I'm really curious how that works out because I know that she goes to hospitals and I know that she goes to the police department and I know that she supports people and she's a really nice person, but I really have no idea whatsoever how her job works. So I'm interviewing her because I think there's a lot of room in what people think of as clergy. I think of clergy, I think you have to have grown up in the church or have, you know, your dad's a pastor. And so then you go to Bible camp and you end up at one of the, you know, Christian universities and you become a pastor and you become a chaplain. That's actually, I'm finding out, not true. And talking to Heather just uh, personally as a friend and Heather has a really interesting path in how she has become a chaplain. And I think you'll really find her life story pretty interesting. She's gone to the School of Hard Knocks. So if any of you are um, a person who maybe has had a couple bumps in the road in your life, or maybe you didn't quite finish the college degree that you wanted to, or didn't quite have the family that you wanted to, or didn't quite see your life turning the way that you thought, um, Heather is a good example to see what's possible and specifically what's possible in the life of clergy, but what's possible in life at all. Um, she's really inspirational and also very encouraging and inspiring in the way that she talks about um, what's available. What I think is cool, too, about um, thinking about chaplain work or clergy work is the opportunities, as I was brainstorming as an entrepreneur in this space, there you think about how many yoga studios are opening and how many juice bars there are, how many, how much people are into like spiritual growth and, you know, yoga retreats and all kinds of spiritual inputs. And this is an area that if you have any inclination to follow it through um, God under any direction, any religion, by the way, because chaplains can work under any religious space, this could be an area for even uh, a business person to pursue and take some entrepreneurial skills into this uh, spiritual space. I think her actual business card is like chief spiritual officer. So if you are someone who would like to have the business card that reads chief spiritual officer, hang on. And here we are with my interview with Heather Riley, the chaplain. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. So today is a really interesting day because I'm here with the incomparable Heather Riley. Can I say that? I think so. I think so too. Uh, and Heather has a really interesting background, a pretty amazing job, and um, a lot of really interesting stories along the way of how she got here. So welcome, Heather. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank I'm you for having so me. So glad to have you. This is going to be really fun. So tell us, what do you do? Well, I am a chaplain and I serve uh, in my local community uh, with the police officers. I am part of the um, Santa Ana Police Department 
And I also work in the hospice field. So I am a hospice chaplain. And then I take that skill set and I am the executive director and chief spiritual officer for a local ministry that serves about 50 nursing facilities within Orange County every week. So you don't really do much. You're, <laughs> you have a lot of time on your hands. Okay, so tell me when you say that you're a chaplain, when I hear that someone's a chaplain, I think that you went to divinity school or you have a degree in theology and you have been around church for a long time and that's really been you know your calling. So how did you get to be a chaplain? Okay, so I think that for the most um, who would be called a chaplain, that would probably be a traditional path, is that they have been through a school of divinity, uh, masters of theology. However, I like to take a different course. And although I have been called to do this work and educated, I did pastor for a lot of years in a local congregation. So for eight years, I was an associate pastor. I am a licensed and ordained minister with the International Church of the Foursquare Ministry. Um, and beyond that, what you do to become a chaplain is that you actually go through something called clinical pastoral education. Okay, hang on one second, because I am a lay person. So when you're talking about, because I'm thinking, I thought a chaplain was basically like a pastor, only just with a different name. Because I know that there's chaplains in the hospital, there's chaplains in the, like you said, in the police department, that kind of thing. In the military. So can you tell us mm -hmm. what is, is it the same thing? They actually are quite different. Okay. So uh, a pastor would be someone who's coming from a, a Christian type of background. Um, they would mainly be versed in just uh, Christian theology, Christian worldview, and um, kind of preaching at a pulpit, have a church behind them. Now, there are some pastors that double as chaplains. They do serve in their community. They certainly come alongside people in a chaplain capacity um, if we have disasters and there's disaster relief. But the what I found when I went through clinical pastoral education is that there truly is a difference. So as a pastor, people would come to me, they would want to have an answer. And I would, as the pastor, need to have that answer from a biblical worldview. So like an answer to a problem or an answer to the a Bible question or any of it? Any of it. So okay. a theological question, a life problem, um, counseling. And I would be typically guiding and directing and leading from the word of God. Okay. As a chaplain, I'm really called to just accompany people that my role as a chaplain is to help the other person in their journey and allow them the space to discover the strengths that they have within themselves, the seeds that they have already had deposited within their lifespan that just need some cultivating or it's a lot of creative creating space. It's a lot of active listening, which is what it, says it is. It's very active, although I'm just sitting there. So I do a lot of being and I, I'm willing to be there with them, present with them, to stay present with them. And I've discovered that most people know what they want once they've been given the opportunity to freely explore with someone without judgment, without shame, 
without condemnation. Um, so I don't have all the answers anymore, which is great. It's been incredibly anymore. liberating. You used to have them all. I did. <laughs> I used to have them all. And it's been incredibly liberating because I can sit with someone as my authentic self and love them for their authentic self and not expect them to believe the way I believe, not expect them to see things the way I see things. So as a chaplain, I'm actually trained across every major religion uh, because we work in healthcare, we work in different fields. We encounter a whole spectrum of people and we have to be ready to address their issues from their worldview and not bring my own worldview into it. So I'm thinking if you're a chaplain, you're kind of a counselor. Is that fair? I think that's fair. Because I, I think that maybe you would have, I'm, a, I'm always an academic slant, mm-hmm. right? So there's, is there a degree or training in psychology or how did, how, when you were little, you know, when you're <laughs> 16, 17, 18, did you always want to be a pastor? No, or you not, wasn't looking, even on my radar. Did your family go to church? No. Okay. Did so, not have any um, real faith background at all. Okay. So give us an idea of the evolution of that. How was that birth? You know, the, just even to kind of be in that space as a pastor. And then I'm, I'm loving this transition into the, the chaplain work because that just gives, I think all of us an idea of how, how much possibility there is within your field. Because I guess if you're a pastor and there's already that job taken at the church, you kind of have to either be the assistant pastor, like you said, or be a youth minister or find some other way to serve. So the chaplain aspect would give you, give people a lot of It opens a whole world up to you. Okay. Um, So my kind of process as I was going to school, I started actually with a psychology background. You did. I did. Um, I was, um, an adult child of alcoholic home, uh, addict home. And I really felt like I wanted to make a difference in the world. I wanted to make a difference for children who had been going through the same circumstances that I had gone through. And so I started in psychology. Unfortunately, I discovered this far later is that I didn't quite have the emotional intelligence to finish that track. And, um, just before college graduation kind of hit Mm self-destruct and my whole world mushroom cloud. So it's not, was it just the psychology you think that kind of got to you or you wouldn't have had the emotional intelligence to finish anything just at that point in your life? Just at that point in my life. Okay, that's. Uh, I just came from such a broken place that um, even though I had the will and the desire to succeed and I could always achieve success, I didn't have the building blocks or the stability to sustain success. And, um, I needed, I needed more growth. And so in my early twenties kind of hit the self-destruct button and went down a path, um, of addiction myself and other woes, which led me to dark places of my soul, which then eventually led me to a faith encounter. And I had a moment of discovering that there was something bigger than myself, that there was a God who absolutely loved me and had a plan and a purpose for me. And I began to change the direction of my life. And that's what started the course towards um, living a life of service, living a life that said, I want to serve others. Um, 
a perspective that changed so much that I began to pursue educational interests within theology at that time. Okay, so did you have a mentor? Did you have someone kind of leading on that path? Because I'm thinking that's a critical juncture for a person in your position where you um, have had an interest in psychology and supporting people and being of service. I, I feel like that's who you are just innately. Yeah. And then being at, you know, having some you know rough times, we all have things to go through and this was your path. And then being on the other side of that. So what's the, what was the mentorship or what really, what got you to keep going in those initial stages to say like, oh, I can do this and this is where I need to keep going. Did you just fall back to, you know, No, you know what? I became very actively engaged in my church community. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't even know if it was possible, but I thought there can be another life for me. There can be another way. And I found a, a faith community that I got actively involved in. And for me, I just began to seek people out people that I saw that had characteristics that I wanted to emulate people that I looked at and said, you have longevity in doing this. So more mature people, more, more mature people in the faith. And I went to them and said, could you help me? Could you direct me? Could you guide me? So there had to be a part on my side where I was willing to do that. And I think that that is a critical quality and a critical characteristic for success is that there has to come a moment where you have to be teachable And you have to submit yourself to somebody else and say, will you walk with me on this journey? And I'm going to listen to what you say, even if I don't agree with it 100% or I can't see how it's going to achieve the end result. I'm going to trust you enough because I see the fruit in your life and I want that fruit in mine. So when you're doing that, I love this. This is so, so great because I see you uh, and I mean, I'll just disclose that I know you personally. So I see you as an incredible leader. And I think you might have always been that person. Is that true? Yes, I was on student government from grade four. Okay, because I can see that. So so it's interesting that you then, because someone who's a leader doesn't always have the foresight or the fortitude, one or the other, to, um, to take coaching and to, like you say, be coachable and to allow yourself not to be the one who has all the answers and correct and all that. So when you're finding these people, was there any one person or couple people in particular? And what was what was their role in life? You know, not to mention their role in bringing you along, but who were you kind of, um, you know, positioning yourself to to um, to navigate this um, this whole journey into past journey. I think that I had two critical events that happened. Um, so as I started on that adventure, I I actually met the man that I was going to marry, and okay. um, he became a huge champion for me. And I had never experienced um, what a good marriage was. I didn't grow up in a home that uh, exemplified a, a healthy marriage in any way. So to suddenly find myself in a marriage where um, I was being loved and I was being honored and I could, I remember him saying to me, I'm not competing with you, Heather, this isn't a competition. And that was just mind blowing to me. Why do you think he needed to say that to you? I think that I was always competing. Okay. I was always competing on every level. Mm Mm-hmm. And to finally be in a relationship, in, in a, a partnership that wasn't going to be a competition, 
but that was actually going to be a complement to one another was a radical paradigm shift for me. Mm -hmm. So I had a partner who was willing to support me, who was willing to encourage me and willing to say, I'm here to be a complement to you and we're not in a competition with one another. So that was a huge turning point for me. And then, um, there were a couple of other people that I just gravitated to. And I said, were they pastors? They were not pastors, um, but they were elders within my faith community. Okay. So that's a, a just a church leader, church leader, of some type. Yeah. Okay. And they had, um, they were more mature. So they had, they were further on in life. They were probably a good 20 to 30 years older than I was. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have those kind of role models in my life. So when I looked ahead, I, I said, okay, here's somebody who's walked this path for a good amount of time. And I, I like where they're at. I can see the end of their road and their road is where I want to end up. And I began to sit with them and say, how did you get there? What did you do? I began to pick their brain kind of like we're sitting here Absolutely. talking right people now. People would be thinking the same thing about what you're doing for people right and, now. And I, I said, you know, how do you live a life like that? How did, how is it possible? Um, how do you have a, a marriage that lasts forever? How do you have, um, you know, healthy boundaries for yourself? How do you have all these different things in life that you could actually sustain success? Because like I said, I could always achieve success. I was always successful. I just couldn't sustain it. Um, and I wanted a good foundation. I wanted a solid foundation that I knew that I would be able to build on and um, not lose ground that it would be just a continuous incline and steady march. And so I did that. They were great people that were willing to sit with me, that were willing to spend time, that that were willing to invest in my life. And they began to sow seeds into me. Um, And then I did, I had another critical incident, and that was that um, this great man that I had married uh, passed away of a massive heart attack at 36. And And you were how old? I was 34. Okay. And so you have this moment of how do I get through this? And am I going to crumble or am I going to make it through even stronger? And the seven years that I had spent in that relationship had given me such a good foundation that even though it was painful and it was hard and there was so much hurt in it, what I had built and set as that foundation established my trajectory and there was no changing it. There was no going back on it. It was going to go forward. And, um, so that was a life of service where I really started and that was as a missionary. And so I, okay. So you were a missionary then with your, with your then husband, with my then husband. Yeah. Okay. And was he the, uh, the impetus for the missionary work or, did he come from a more faith background? Nope. Okay. Nope. So we kind of found it at together. the same time together um, and just decided, wow, this life is pretty good. You know, this is a, a good life. Let's, let's be people that remember um, where we've come from. Let's remember that there's still people to give back to, that there's still people that are hurting, that are lost, that are um, in need of being loved. And so that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to say, okay, we're going to give our lives to something bigger than just one another. So that was kind of the the move to missions. And so I stayed that. So I was a missionary um, 
So the missionary was really your first, would you say that was your entree into the pastor, chaplain? Absolutely. Okay. Do you think, just in thinking about it now, that that is a good place to start? You know, if someone's thinking, wow, you know, that'd be kind of cool to be a chaplain, or maybe I could be a pastor, or, you know, I'm competitive, but I kind of want to tone it down a little, which is what I'm getting from your, uh, you know, talking about it. Do you think that that's a good spot? Like, what what did that do for you? I think that each one has... I think each one of us has our own journey. Okay. I think that we can look at other people's journeys and see where they've stepped along the way and say, is that a trail I can follow? Is that a pathway that can lead me there? But um, I don't know that, that starting as a missionary would take you there. For me, it happened to be my path. Um, just before that, I was an executive with um, a major department store, a nationwide chain, and I was... Um, a young, young executive, but groomed immediately by our lead executive, put into executive training. I loved it. But then for me, it became that I wanted to work in a, in a environment, in a community that was more service oriented. And so that's what drew me to kind of the faith-based area. And it just so happened that a position in missions opened up. I don't know that um, that's necessarily the way that you would get to be a chaplain. Okay. I think that um, definitely you want to look, do do I want to serve others? I think that's a big part of it. You know, if you want to live a life of service, because leadership really is serving, I think that that's one of the greatest keys that I discovered early on in my leadership is that um, I became challenged. So from a missionary, I'll just say this. So I served as a missionary for eight years in that time I remarried and I'm married now to an amazing, incredible man. I, um, I'm one of the fortunate people that can say I've been loved greatly by two men in my life. And, um, I know that that's a lot more than a lot of women can Mm -hmm. say, and I'm so beyond fortunate. Um, so I have a great husband. We, um, got married and had two children back to back very quick. And I quickly realized that I could not maintain a 40 hour a week demanding schedule that I had as a missionary. My missionary work was really demanding. Okay. Because you, so I think missionary, I think I'm going to Africa, I'm going to South America, I'm going to India, I'm going to all these places to support local services. I'm going, you know, even in my own community. So were you on site missionary or you said that you managed? So I was a, I took a home assignment. I was actually ready to go anywhere in the world. I was really Um, especially once my husband passed away and then I had a a significant succession of losses. Um, We had a beautiful home in Newport Beach. I lost that. We had a foster daughter that we were raising for seven years. I lost custody of her. And so I was ready to go hide anywhere in the world and serve a local tribe. Um, But the, the place that I was called to was actually being here and I was a director of development and I became a fundraiser. And so the, you know, I see how my skill set, my gifting, all those kind of things were coming into the mix. And even though I had no idea what fundraising was, I was gifted at it. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, incredible to be on a team of about five people that over eight years raised $13 million for Bible translation. Amazing. I mean, amazing, amazing. Um, That job was demanding. A director of development job is a very demanding job with two young children and a new husband. Uh, it was time for a transition and that's when the next person stepped into my life. And so that next leader that stepped into my life was a pastor 
and um, he began to say, how did he come into your life? So I actually met him on a trip to Israel right after my late husband passed away and um, met him on the banks of the Jordan River. So not an arranged kind of, I'm, I want to look at other options. I want to think about what you're doing, you know, not just a natural, just I'm living my life. I'm doing what I need to do to, to survive and be okay. And all of a sudden there we are. So that's a gift. It's a gift. Okay. A complete gift. And actually he's who introduced me to my husband now. Second gift. Second (laughs) gift. So, uh, but he believed in me. He saw things in me that I didn't see in myself. He began to champion me. He began to, um, I like to say he called out the gold in me, you know, that there's, there's gold inside of every person. And, you know, sometimes I have to take out a shovel and dig to find that treasure chest within people. And it's hard work. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, when you find those ones that are worth it, it's, it's incredible. So he saw something in me. He began to call out the treasures within me and encourage me. And my husband was very encouraging as well to, um, become licensed and ordained. And so I went through my theological training. What's it was the about two years. That? So most people would go to seminary. That's a traditional track. But like I said, I haven't really been traditional. (laughs) No. (laughs) Not in any way, shape, or form. Um, So I got um, fast-tracked. What they did was they offered a coach that you could be assigned um, from our denomination. And they take you through your 24 points of doctrine. Basically, it's like a private seminary. So I did private seminary and then um, interviewed and tested and, and passed. What's the test like? Can I just ask? I mean, brass tacks. I, we have to We have to know, right? Yeah. Is it, is it like a written test or it's an oral test? It's or how a, do you become an ordained right. minister? So, and is it it's licensed by the state or by... It's how? licensed by the denomination. Okay. So I think there's just three that actually will license females. Um, so we have uh, Pentecostal and then you have Presbyterian and then you have Episcopalian that will um, ordain female ministers. Mm-hmm. This one was a three-part interview, part on your doctrine, part on your polity of the denomination, and then one part on um, your personal life and leadership and how you live, basically. And you have a panel that you interview in front of, and it was about a five-hour. I was going to say, is it, is it as stressful as doing your like PhD orals? It, is, it was extremely stressful. I would think so. Yes. Okay. So a lot of ready for that. You got to be ready. You got to be ready because all of your doctrine, you have to know inside and out. Mm -hmm. I had to theologically be able to defend every position that I had. Again, what, why I had all the answers. Thank goodness you had them then. (laughs) I had them then. So you had to be able to, you you theologically had to be prepared. So I could theologically scripture and exactly. Okay. Yes. So I could theologically defend every position that I had in about, 24 points of doctrine. Um, and I passed that. And then I began to practice uh, as a pastor, as an associate pastor. And I did that for about eight years. Do you have to be an ordained minister to practice as a, as a pastor? You have to be licensed. Yes. Okay. I would say yes. Ordained and licensed is different. It is. So uh, ordination is another level uh, higher level. Okay. So for us, I started with my license I see. and then two years later I was ordained. Um, I now hold incl- ecclesiastical endorsement as well. So I think as you progress, it's kind of like, what's the next, what's mm-hmm. the next, what's the next in this journey. Um, and there's always more to attain. 
And so I continued on that course and um, that's what eventually led me to being a chaplain. Actually, I went to a, I went to a first responders uh, disaster relief course that pastors could go to. That's why I said some pastors do double as chaplains. So I went to that training. What, this is when you're an assistant pastor. This is when I How long had you been an assistant pastor? Because I have a feeling you're going to transition here and take me on. I'm going to take road. you to another road. <laughs> yeah. So, so at that point I had probably been um, about five years and I had okay. been significant investment, significant you probably investment. really knew what you were doing as a pastor. I did assistant pastor. So, yes. right. Okay. Yes. So I, uh, directed discipleship ministry. I led women's ministry, um, our prophetic ministry, you know, lots of things. Are I had you choosing or it's being chosen for you. Actually, we had a very unique opportunity where I was, and that was each year you would kind of re up as if you were, uh, in like a re-interview, I mean, or yeah, kind of like in the military, like you can re-up. Um, so at the end of each year, we would um, take a break as a leadership team. We would go away on a retreat and we would say, are you still called to lead the area you've been leading? So nobody was ever forced to continue in a path that maybe they had grown out of, maybe they had new passions. So that was a very unique expression, I think, in a, a faith community. I think once you... Um, are in a role, you're kind of placed in that role uh, from what I've seen. So this was very unique in that respect that each year I had the opportunity to say, you know what, I don't know if that's where I'm called to or, hey, I'd like to try this one. I would want to go this way. So I had a lot of opportunity to explore who I was as a human being, explore what my gifts were, what my talents were. And I had leaders that trusted me and leaders that believed in me. And, um, and that's what that's really where I became challenged about my own leadership. Um, and the, the question asked to me is who is going to pay the price for my leadership? Was I going to pay the price for my leadership or were the people that I was leading going to pay the price for my leadership? And so that was a, okay. Expand on that. So when you ask yourself that question, what are you asking? What are you asking really? Like when you say pay the price, what do you mean by that? So I think that every good leader I think every leader knows that there is a price to be paid for leadership and like um, a personal price, a personal or, price, yeah, okay. right. that there is a sacrifice sacrifice. Yeah. And, um, and either the, the people you're leading are going to pay or you're going to pay. I see what you mean. Does that, does that make mm -hmm. sense? And so for me, it was a very pivotal moment where I, I began to say the kind of leader that I'm going to be is the kind of leader that, um, determines the amount of success I have by, the amount of success that's achieved by those that I'm leading, that my own success is going to become inconsequential mm -hmm. to the success of those that I am um, bringing up basically. And so it was just a, another one of those paradigm shifts where again, I'm not competing. Mm -hmm. um, it's not it's a competition. That you probably have to remind yourself <laughs> that because you're, you're, I don't want to say like you're a really hard driving person, but even just going along your story, you are a, a doer. You are, I'm going to handle this. I'm going to get this done. You know, it, it's, I would see you as an executive level person in any industry you're going to be in. Yeah. So then shifting into something that is, you know, faith-based service oriented, you really have to, I don't want to say dial it down because that's not the right word, but manage it, manage it. Uh, I you know, think, I think that's a great for it, right? That's a great way to put it. And I think that the seeds for that were really formed in me as a, a younger girl. I was a ballerina. I danced in high levels at, at the Joffrey Ballet Company in New York City. So 
there were certain things in me, certain drives in me that uh, are natural. That's just who I am. That's how I'm hardwired. That's who I'm designed to be. And that's okay to be that. And it's just harnessing that. And then it's saying, okay, how do I use that for good? How do I help humanity with that kind of gifting? And it served me very well, but I've, I've had to make conscious choices. I've had to make decisions where I come to those points in my life. And one of those was in leadership to say, okay, if I'm going to lead, how do I lead? And so one of my theories of leading is servant leadership, um, authentic leadership, transparent leadership. That's the kind of leadership. And um, it's, it's really about the success of the one that you're leading, because if they're not successful, then I'm not really leading them. And that was a huge key for me. That was really big. Right. Rather than the, the paradigm of, oh, look at me and how amazing I am as a leader. And I have 20 people I'm leading. I have 2000 people. So now I must be a better leader, right? Right. (laughs) It's not not to say that, but I think it's really important for, um, for anyone listening who is, um, like a strong competitive person, this is an option that's available to you. And not only that, it's an option that you should like should, we're shoulding, Mm -hmm. but that you, that, that you can really look at your skills can really be used in this space because I don't want all of us to be thinking like I, you know, probably have this bias too before being, you know, a really good friend of yours that in the, the space of that either, uh, you have people who are, I don't want to say meek, that's not correct, but just, you know, soft, gentle, kind, you know, loving, supportive people without having the oomph, you know, right. like, I'm going to like take this down, we're going to make this happen, mm-hmm. you know, like you would think of as a, you know, real high power kind of executive, we're going to, you know, make right. this company great. But I think the great leaders now, even on the business side, are coming your way, right? They I are, think so They too. are turning into your your example that you're sharing. I think so. I think that um, we're seeing how effective that type of leadership is, that people respond to that. Mm -hmm. They naturally gravitate to that. When you take an interest in someone, when you actually invest in them, when you actually take time out of your day, and that's, that's the most valuable commodity that I have is my time. And so when I'm willing to say, you know what, you're worth it. You're worth whatever it is that I'm going to sacrifice. You're worth it because your life matters. You mean something and you have something to contribute to the greater whole and the greater good. And it's, um, it's an incredible feeling to have that type of attention and to have that type of investment from people that you admire, people that you honor. Um, and so I, I was fortunate to have that. I I can think of two great leaders in my life. And so the first one was the CEO of the mission agency that I was with. He saw something in me and absolutely was a servant leader. And then my senior pastor, absolutely servant leader. And that really started to shape and form who I was as a, a dynamic leader. And it wasn't so much about the competitive of how far I could get and how good I could do and what kind of numbers I could draw, but how can I collectively help the whole? Yeah, because the competitive piece, I think you probably naturally have to have that even just to get through the academic requirements that you had just to even get to that level. You have to have some kind of a drive in you to be able to do that. So, yeah. And, you know, I have always loved academics. Like I, I would have loved to have finished college and, um, it was, I've always pursued academics, even though it wasn't, it might not have been formal in a, in a lot of years when I was still 
kind of grounding and finding myself, but I've always loved academics. I have a mind to pursue um, knowledge and interest. And so I've always gone after that. And if they're not having a formal degree has never been in your way. Has it been in your way? It hasn't been in my way, which has been really quite incredible. Um, it's, it's kind of like this non-traditional mm-hmm. path. And I, I just want to encourage anybody who's listening right now that it's never too late and um, it's never done and it's never over because there can be an incredible position just for you that you have been going through life to get to that final point. And so for me then, once I had my license, my ordainment, uh, my ecclesiastical endorsement, I then... Um, started to, uh, I was telling you, I went to a, this is the first small training. Okay. Yeah, so I went to a small training. I thought, Oh, this will be great. Cause I'm always pursuing more. Oh yes. I can have another certification. All right. I'll take it. Let's do this. And when I got there, I just discovered, wow, I really have a passion for this. I have a passion to be there for people who are in crisis and partly probably because of my own personal experience with the loss of my husband, of being in that moment of a critical incident and remembering the chaplain that was there with me in that moment. It was a police chaplain um, who came and responded to that. And so it had a significant impact in my life. And my children were still young at the time. And I began to look at, okay, well, how, how does one become a chaplain? What exactly does that mean? What exactly does that look like? How is it different from being a pastor? But what did they say at this first responders? Was there one thing? Did they say something that you, you said, that's it for me or what? It was just a training, right? It was, it was just like a, a three day thing. Yeah. Three day training. So you're just, you're just kind of getting a message, right? I was is just there... getting a message okay. and it was, it was like, time for you to be there. It was like, yes, this is what I'm going to do. And I had some good friends who were in healthcare and continued to encourage me. They kept saying, you know, you'd be a really good chaplain in the hospital. You, you have the type okay. of temperament. Messages are coming. From Messages are coming from different angles. Um, they're, they're saying to me, you know what, you, you'd be really good in a hospital environment. And um, so when my uh, children got to the age where I could actually make that type of commitment, because clinical pastoral education is a huge commitment, um, so I have 2,000 hours of clinical pastoral education. What does that mean? To, so clinical, pastor- yeah, education? clinical pastoral education is an action reflection type of education. So you have um, one unit is 400 hours. 100 of the hours is theological training. The other 300 hours is actual clinical practice. So I'm in with um, patients. I'm in with families. I'm actually doing the work. And then what you do is you come back and you reflect on the work that you've done. And it's a journey of discovery. And it's not so much about what the other people said in the room as much as it is about what I said. And why did I say that? Why did I respond the way that I responded? Why did I react the way I reacted? What was driving that? And so it's this very deep internal journey into your own soul to find out who you are, why do you do what you do, and just heighten your levels of self-awareness so that you can actually respond rather than react, and it becomes this great skill. Um, so I did Are you that. understanding your biases a lot more? Are they illuminated? Oh, my goodness. It was a huge journey for me. I mean, just incredible. The first, even the first day, just like, boom, Wow okay, here are walls that I have that I didn't even realize I had. Because if I want to truly be there for someone who's hurting, if I really want to be there for somebody, what am I willing to take off of my brick walls 
that you're bringing in that I'm bringing in. Okay. Cause we all build walls. Sure. Whether we realize it or not, just from our worldview, from whatever it is that we have, we have walls and I had walls that I wasn't even aware that I had. I thought, Oh, I'm loving people. I'm doing a good thing. I'm pastoring. I'm serving. No, no, no. I had walls. I had big giant walls. And, um, how do I deconstruct those, but still maintain my integrity of who I am? And that was a huge journey to say, um, I'm willing to move these away so that I can journey with you through this space and do it in a way that honors you and honors me. And that was, that was incredible education. And so went ahead and did that. And then for chaplains, there actually is a certifying body that you test through. Is this after the 400 hours? Yeah. Is 400 hours the minimum requirement? 400 hours just is one unit. And um, for certification, you actually have a minimum of four units and I have five units. So four, four times 400 hours? How long does that take? So a what, normal person, I don't, not I by the bionic woman that I'm here with, but how long would that take a normal person? Um, one unit I think is about 14 weeks. And so I did an internship at, um, one, at one of our, our hospitals here, and then they invited me to do a residency. So I did a one year residency and that's how I completed all my, my so hours. So it takes a good year of solid work though. Good solid. year of solid work. Yeah, absolutely. You're committed. You're working on call. You are you're in to win. And that's after you have some kind of a basis. Right. You already have a theological degree okay. at this point. So um, I, again, I was the anon, anon, anomaly in the room. Um, at the table with me is a doctorate of divinity, a double doctorate of divinity. Uh, I, I was really the only one in there that didn't have really formal high level education. Um, and there are there other women? There were a few other women. Okay. Yeah. A uh, chaplain begins to open, I think, the window for women. So do you mean more than, say, pastor? Or? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So like I said, there's only three uh, bodies that will ordain or recognize a female as a, mm-hmm. a official capacity as a minister. So there's a lot of uh, pushback in that arena and um, definitely more difficult to have a female presence that's up in front, that's leading, that's in the pulpit, that is um, doing something. Whereas a chaplain, it's much more acceptable. Actually, a, a female is almost preferable. There's just something about a female nature that tends to be more nurturing, um, more available. Um, that's not to say there aren't great male chaplains because there are the, the gentlemen with me when my husband passed away was a male chaplain. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Um, but just the nature of the work lends toward a, a feminine energy. A feminine let's say. energy. So whether let's that say comes that. from a man or a woman, it doesn't matter, but it's the, it's that energy. It's that, that energy. So that was a um, incredible journey. And then you go through a licensing certification process. Um, once you're at the end of that, you can interview and, so if you're young, I would say, and you have a, a theological, like, yes, I, I would like to pursue that, then I encourage you to start getting your education done because there were even higher levels that I could achieve. Had, if I was younger, I think, yes, at my stage in life where I'm at and my my family life, I, I'm not going to go through too much more education. I, I think I've done a, enough. I actually went back and did a, a master's degree. Here we go. Here's another, um, you know 
never finished the bachelor's somehow got into the master's program <laughs> the traditional route <laughs> yes that's to go back to the traditional route yes so for me um i felt at the time that i wanted to do um a master's of strategic leadership now are you already a chaplain I am a chaplain. I'm a resident. You're a resident. I'm just invited to do the residency, but there are... How long is a chaplain residency? How long are you it expecting was, that It was be? a one-year residency, but part of part the... part of the 400, 1600 hours? Exactly. Okay. So I had done the internship, the 400 hours. They wanted me to do the residency. Part of the requirements of the residency were formal education. So this is where I it started to catch up with me because I didn't have that degree. Okay. Um, Interesting. So at that time, I said, okay, I'll pursue my master's degree. And I figured out there was a place where I could do that. Without the, without an undergrad. Without the undergrad. Mm -hmm. I was able to um, test and show that I could be proficient in master's level writing. And so they, um, I petitioned their board and their board reviewed my application and deemed that I would be acceptable. Did anyone program. else petition their board or is that just a special skill that you have? I, I think that <laughs> I say that lovingly because I really think that it's so important for people to hear this because it's a very inspiring story. The, the door is never closed. The answer is not yet. Right. Not right now mm-hmm. or maybe later or, you know, because you're just finding ways to just keep taking the messages, taking the learning, getting the coaching and finding a way to make it work. Finding a way to make it work. I think, I think that's part of my, um, like I said, like that competitive drive, that, that, that part of me that says I won't be denied. I'm going to, I'm going to have that. And it's, it's finding the way it's saying, okay, even though everybody else is saying, no, I know that there's got to be a way there must be a way and let's, let's pursue it. So it turns out that they do accept in some master's um, arenas that there's, I think it's like 10% uh, will be allowed in on a waiver of their bachelor if they can prove that they have high levels of success in their field of business and that they have shown. So I, I showed that I had a lot of certifications. I could continue to pursue academics, even though I wasn't in a formal uh, master's degree. So I had tons of certifications. I'd been certified every year at something else. You probably could have had five bachelor degrees by now. Completely. Okay. So I continued, I had high levels of success and then I was able to produce work that was exemplary. And, um, so I found the degree for me that was a master's of strategic leadership. And I thought it was great because the first day they actually said, okay, if you're going to pursue strategic leadership, you should probably know what those two words mean. And uh, we like to use that a lot. We like to say, oh, we're going to have a strategic planning meeting. We're going to be strategic here. We're going to do that. But what do those two words actually mean? And so it was, it was just like, another paradigm shift. My mind just opened up in that moment when they described what strategic meant. Strategic means that you actually have a distinctive in the marketplace, that you are actually doing something that nobody else is doing. And so in a marketplace where we all come together to do the same thing so that we can gain notoriety for what we do, how do you also set yourself apart and have a distinctive so that not only do you have um, kind of brand reputation, but then how do you branch off and become distinctive? And that's what strategic actually means. So um, as I was looking at that, I thought, well, I was in healthcare. I was doing my residency. 
And I was, I had spent enough time in the, I had done my internship in the emergency department. I'd spent enough time in there, 400 hours being with the people. And the other part is leadership. And that means that if you're going to lead people, you actually have to be in the midst of the people you're leading. You can't just sit aloft with these ideas of how you're going to change a community or a culture and not actually be immersed in it. And so as I was immersed in this emergency culture, I began to see that there was a great need for caring for the care providers, that they were suffering from huge amounts of burnout and compassion fatigue. And who are these care providers? When you say care provider, who? So I'm talking about the nurses, the physicians, the, the, um, I mean, just everybody who's working in that department is seeing so much human suffering daily and they're fatiguing. Their compassion is fatiguing. They're burning out and it's escalating. And so all of a sudden I thought, well, we could actually do something to, to change this. And so I began to develop my thesis around that whole idea of how can spiritual care impact care providers? How can it be a tool or a resource for them to actually increase their compassion satisfaction and increase their resilience factor? Because I'm also about resilience because my life story has been about being resilient. You know, how do you fall and get back up? And how do you fall and get back up? And how do you continue to say, I'm going to keep pressing forward no matter what has happened in my life? Yeah, they say what fall fall seven times, get up eight. That's it, and then you're <laughs> then you're going. Yes. Okay. So as I understand this, so the chaplain part comes in, but you're a chaplain. I'm st- maybe I'm the only one who's completely confused at times. Right. So you're a chaplain, but then you choose to go and get your strategic leadership de- master degree. Right. Right. Okay. So you could have just stayed the course to be a chaplain without that without that additional education or were you required to have some level of additional I, I education? I could have just, I could have maintained as a chaplain, um, but not an official certified capacity. I would not have been able to be certified through the board certifications. And then what, what can you do with that certification that you would not have been able to do without it? Is it really just uh, like a financial gain at that point or is it I think I didn't know at that time. I think that it was uncharted territory to me. And I was um, feeling like I really wanted that certification. And so I was going to go for it. And I, I, I think a lot of times in my life, I kind of get the bait and switch. I would have never gone for the degree had I not thought that I needed it for the certification. But now what I've ended up doing, I'm not really utilizing that anyhow. I see. Does that make sense? Yeah, you didn't need it for that. I didn't need it for that, but I need it for what I'm doing now. Right. And you just don't know why. That's a really important point because I think so many of us, as we go along, you don't even know. You think you're doing it for one reason, but really when when you come to find out two years later, it's actually going to help you with this thing that you hadn't even thought about two years ago. That's just it. And so that's really, it was the catalyst for the whole vision of caring for care providers, which is really what I'm passionate about today. And I have an opportunity to express that as the executive director and chief spiritual officer for um, Orange County Amazing Grace Ministries. We go into skilled nursing facilities and um, care for the care providers there. We've developed a program called Refuge, and it is indeed a refuge. It's a, a space that we create of safety, calm, sanctuary, where a care provider can step in and um, we're diffusing 
essential oils. We're playing meditation music. We're feeding them in body. We're um, being present with them. And we're doing hand massages or a shoulder massage. We're utilizing all five kind of love languages. We're engaging all the senses. And we're saying you're valued and you're appreciated. And again, it's that investment. It's that investment in another human being to say the work that you do is valuable. The work that you are providing in taking care of seniors and people who are otherwise unable to take care of themselves And often, unfortunately, they're not very kind when they're being taken care of. And so to be able to come in, step into that space and say to that care provider, what you do matters and there is someone who sees and thank you. It's kind of like a, um, you know, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's kind of like dealing with a teenager. I think it's sometimes because, you know, when they're, when it's an elderly population, a lot of that, the actions and the reactions aren't even, aren't choice. They're not choice. And sometimes they have advanced stages of Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's and dementia and they have other health issues. And, you know, it's kind of like trying to help a a wounded animal and sometimes it bites you Mm -hmm. and it's scared and it's, um, sometimes there's just not kind people. Right. Maybe to begin with. I mean, they've just, they've lived a life that maybe no one's really been kind to them and they've come to the end of their life and they have nobody and they find themselves in these situations and they're angry and they're bitter and they're upset. And so we go in and we love them as well as we can. But the other component is loving the care providers. And that all came from the Masters of Strategic Leadership, which I started to pursue because I wanted the board certification, but that's not really what I'm doing anymore. Does that make sense? So interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So when I think of Chaplin, because now you're you're a leader and you're setting up programs where you set up this amazing Mm -hmm. program, I think of a chaplain as someone who, uh, like, wasn't there one on MASH or something, you know, when we were growing up, <laughs> yes. like, that, that was somebody who comes, was. right, wasn't there? <laughs> okay, right. so there's, I, I always date myself with these programs, but I think <laughs> of, of someone like that who would come in, you know, someone's not doing well, they're maybe crumping in the hospital, and it's time to just make sure that they have spiritual support, the family has what they need. Right. So is is that wrong? Is that something that a no, chaplain would do? I, I think that that's that you absolutely do? what a chaplain can do. Um, I think that a lot of it is education. I know a lot in the hospital when I would walk into a room and people heard, oh, the chaplain's here. Um, oftentimes people would panic or people would think, oh my gosh, did they not tell me something that's going on in my surgery? Because they think the it's chaplain the end? is here. They think it's the end because the chaplain is there. Because it's been portrayed so many times that way, I think Hollywood portrays that. Um, and it's not to say that it doesn't happen. Like I said, I work with the police department. I am called out into the community. I am called out on those um, calls when it is end of life and the family needs that support. So that does happen. I do practice that. Um, but there's so much more. There's so much more depth and um Oftentimes when I would walk into a hospital room um, and I started to actually work with the staff and and I was fortunate enough to work with the executives and the C-level that they would invite me in. And I said, you know, I'm here to to tend to your soul if you would allow me. Can we agree that we're body, mind, soul? And I'm not here to advance an agenda. I'm here to, like I said, journey with you. Can we journey together? And I think that we heal in community that um, when we're in community with one another, we have the maximum healing. And that's just 
how we're designed. We're designed to be rooted and connected with other individuals. And from that, we can have this incredible transformation of life and um, opportunity to be the, the true person we were really meant to be. Which I love about this distinction, too, and I'm thinking back in the conversation earlier, we're talking about pastor versus chaplain, because this really is a different opening. And I'm wondering, as you think about the skills that you have, what do you have innately that makes you more, what's the word, present as a chaplain than or prefer more, you know, having a better preference for the chaplain work from the the pastor work and I know we talked about having all the answers but is there are there qualities in you that lend themselves or has that just been a growth process in you that has brought you here I think it's been a growth process I think it really has been a journey and I don't think that I would be the chaplain that I am without having been the pastor that I was Mm -hmm. so I really do think that it has been an evolution um, of who I am as a human being it's been an evolution of um my theology of who God is and being able to explore all of that. And I think the incredible part of the journey from uh, clinical pastoral education is I explain, you know, what were those walls that I had to deconstruct? Um, and, and through that process for me was, it was a very big challenge, especially coming from such an evangelical um, Pentecostal background to really wrestle through those issues with God and say, who am I and how do I maintain my integrity and how do I still love people that think differently and see things differently? And, um, and so that was like this huge journey for me that, um, really came through, um, dream work and envisioning and dream work. So we did a lot of dream work where, um, we would record our dreams and it, it was a great, great, um, that sounds fascinating exercise. Right. So like I said, a lot of contemplative exercises, a lot of action, reflection, peer evaluation, um, one-to-one meetings with our supervisor. So you're going through a lot of counseling in that year and a half of training and uh, real intimate with who you are as a, a human being. Um, and what I came to at the end of it in my dreams were that um, I had two kind of symbols that kept repeating and uh, they would encourage us as we would dream it to ask that symbol in the dream, what are you, what message are you trying so like to give Like lucid me? dreaming, right? Right, lucid dreaming. Mm-hmm. So what message are you giving to me? And so the two things for me were um, I, a snake and then a cheetah. And so... Um, I was doing a labyrinth walk and uh, meditating. And as I was doing it, I was walking the labyrinth and I thought, oh, I'm like in the coils of a snake. And as I got to the center of it, it was like the opening of that aha moment of saying, I'm the snake, that I'm actually shedding the skins that keep me from connecting with people um, that are different than me that see the world differently than I do, that don't believe the same things that I do. And I'm shedding all of that so that I can meet them right where they're at, love them right where they're at, and um, join them right where they're at. But I'm also the cheetah. There are certain things about me that are never going to change. There are some spots on me that that's who I am, and that's okay. And so it was like this great picture for me 
of my process of as I moved of what I was willing to let go of and what was going to stand firm in me. And it's almost like, yeah, it's almost like I'm thinking from that experience, you, you really can't go back and be a pastor now. Like you just, you, you almost can't, maybe someone else could, but I think just having that experience where you are so self-aware I mean, if you're called to be a pastor, you're called to be a pastor, but having, having that self-awareness, it really, I do think it's kind of an advanced counselor. It really is. Yeah. And I, I would, I would almost call a chaplain, um, uh, a coach Mm -hmm. because I believe that they have the answers within them and I'm there to ask the open-ended questions and allow them to explore and discover even in the final even in the final moments because i want to ask you because i'm sure people mm-hmm. are thinking wow well, she asked about this because <laughs> what what do you say to people i've i've had a lot of people close to me die so it's a it's an area of life that i have been fortunate enough i guess to have um developed a, a great comfort level with mm-hmm. i'm very in very comfortable around that that concept sure. and that process. So what do you say or what what happens in those rooms when it is the uh, kind of an end of life conversation and you're with a family and there are varying degrees of acceptance? Yeah, you know, each one of those situations is so unique, Chris. I mean, it's just, um, it's a, one, I just want to say it's a privilege and it's an honor to be with people on the edge of life, that it is a very sacred moment Um, and so every situation is different. Each one believes a little bit differently. And as they believe, um, that kind of fills the room. And my role is to come in and help them engage that experience to the fullest measure. Now, some of them want to run from that experience. That sounds painful. Some of them want to, um, And so how do I compassionately care for them in that way? And so what it makes me is um, I have very quick skills. I have to know right away when I walk into that room, I'm I'm making instant assessments. And reading people? And reading people. Um, I'm reading their body language. I'm reading how they're talking to me. Uh, So I'm making kind of split second judgments. And it really comes from experience. I was going to ask you how that. I think that a a lot of it comes from experience, which is so great about the clinical pastoral education, because like I said, a hundred of the hours are theological training. Yes. But 300 of those hours are actually on the unit practicing what you're going to do and then reflecting back on it. And how could you have done it different? How could you have been different in that moment? And, you know, so having the 2000 hours finishing my residency and then beyond that. Now I've been practicing for another two years um, in a hospice forum where I really truly am journeying with people through the end part of their life and, and holding the families and supporting them and holding their grief with them. You know, what is, what is that like? And so for each one, it's a little bit unique for each one. It's a little bit different and I'm still learning. How do I process that? Where do I go with all of that? Um, I yeah, think you that almost I'm, need your own incense room and your own right. hand massages. <laughs> yes. So right? occasionally, you know, I, I think I throw out the SOS ring and I'm like, okay, the chaplain needs a chaplain. You know, yeah, this right. is like, I, I don't know that I can walk through this one more time. And um, 
hospice especially has been a, a different side of the journey. I'm great in critical incident. I think I do really, and really well. That. So Chris, critical okay, incident. Okay, so critical is like incident is just, it earthquake happens. Earthquake or trauma right. or something. Disaster, um, heart attack. One minute you're here, one minute you're not. Mm-hmm. Kind okay. of instant. Um, and I think that I'm so great in that because I'm dealing with the family. I haven't actually met the person that's already gone. Oh, I Does see. that make sense? Well, yes, but why do you think that you're, why do you think that that's beneficial for you? Well, it was an interesting kind of just perspective to say, why do I thrive in this environment? Um, but yet, uh, the, my beginning time in hospice was a lot more difficult. And that's because I don't think that my boundaries were really there. And so as I began to engage with patients and I just, I love people. I, I, I truly do. I love people. The more that I hear people's narratives, the more I fall in love with them. And the more I fall in love with humanity, even in our brokenness and our woundedness and everything that we have going on. I still at my core, I love people and, um, to hear their life story and, and become invested in them. Again, it's that, where's my boundary? Because now I'm, now I'm invested in you. And, um, now you've become my friend and now I've taken you into part of who I am and now I have to release you. And this is the friend who's now going on to the other side. That's right. And And in the other, and then the critical situation, that friend has already left. That friend has already left. And I didn't even really know that friend Mm -hmm. who becomes my friend is the one who's left to stay. And so that's, there's not a lot of pain in that. Um, but there is, there is some in the, in the getting to know and journeying with, but I think I've gotten better over the last two years. I think I, um, have gotten a good, um, boundary there in how much I allow in. And there's always going to be ones who permeate the boundary, no matter what Mm -hmm. they just do. They, they resonate with you for whatever reason they, someone can smile and it will remind me of my grandpa or, you know, it just Mm -hmm. happens. Um, or you just have that connection. You just have that soul to soul connection with somebody. And when you spend a lot of time with them, it's, it's real easy to have a soul to soul connection with somebody. I think it's important for everyone to hear that too. It, it's so easy to forget that physicians and nurses and chaplains and pastors are people (laughs) who have real emotions and real lives and their own children and their own parents and their own, you know, people that they've known who've had, you know, cancer or heart attacks or whatnot. And so being able to separate that is probably a really strong requirement for the work that you do. And it's really interesting. I appreciate you sharing that with us about setting the boundaries Mm -hmm. because only you can do that. That's right. And I have to actually recognize, which means I have to actually recognize when my boundary is being crossed. I have to actually um, reflect on it. I have to be self-aware enough to know, oh, I'm feeling that. And why am I feeling that? And so it kind of just takes you on a journey of a conversation within yourself of saying, okay, I'm feeling this way, but why am I feeling this way? And um, what do I do with that emotion? And so I think oftentimes um, physicians, nurses, uh, people in care, policemen, right. So I work with a lot with the, with the officers, officer involved shooting. Uh, I work with um, peer support. And so this template of leadership is actually crossing over to multifaceted areas, right? It's going from healthcare to um, civil servants to um, over here to nursing population and seniors. So it, it's 
it's an effective tool, an effective um, way of being that um, offers vulnerability. And in that vulnerability, in that space, we actually have our most creativity, I think. What I'm loving are so many things about this talk. And as we continue talking, I'm thinking, I would like to keep asking you a thousand questions, but I won't. But I'll, I'll keep it brief and just in the last you know, few minutes here as we kind of close out and bring it back all around to the entire experience, because I do want to hear a little bit about the police department because you've kind of mentioned it a couple of times. So if we can talk about the police department, and then I'm going to ask you, you know, some of the things that you love about your work and some of the things that maybe you could leave, you know, because sometimes people say paperwork and stuff sure. like that. But first, before we go, just what is it that you do with the police department? Because I, I see you in like a uniform and I feel like you're so official. You've got like a badge and everything, right? You look I like do. you just came off the beat. So do. what do you do with the police department as a chaplain? As a chaplain, um, we are actually, um, I, I think we have a great department in that our chaplains are really involved and they're not just um, kind of ceremonial chaplains. So we uh, were one of the first programs to actually integrate chaplains into serving the police officers that were more there as a support for the officers than for the community. So um, I do have my formal uniform. I do have a real badge. Um, I had my swearing in uh, oath of office. Um, I did a full background check, just like uh, I was yeah, going to be an officer. Very official. Very official. And, have that on. Um, and uh, I do do the city, um, council invocations we do have formal ceremonies that we dress up in our full regalia for mostly with the police department we are there to support the officers and i think that we're finally recognizing that we are integrated beings that we are whole human beings and if we don't treat the whole person that we are um, undermining our society that we're undermining uh, the very fabric and nature of who we are as a community and as a people, because we want to separate those parts of us. And we want to say, come in here, just this part of you and don't bring the rest, only bring this part. But that's, it's really not possible because we are whole beings and each one is inextricably expressed. And as one interacts with the other, we, they affect the other. So we have science, we have studies that show how the mind and the spirit interact with one another and the body, and it can come out in physical manifest in physical symptoms. And so we're finally, I think, advancing as a culture to say, let's look at the whole being, let's, let's treat holistically and let's, um, let's not, um, make people only be part of who they are. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, especially when you think about it so concretely in something like being a policeman or a policewoman, because they go off and do, like you said, only bring this part of you that can deal with seeing the crime scene, that can deal with the belligerent drunk or whoever, whatever you're going to deal with, the traffic incident, whatever you're pulled over for. Um, and then, but take all the feelings, the fact that you have, you know, a sick child at home, whatever it is, leave that. Leave that. Exactly. I think, and I think that that's, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's one of the most difficult challenges for um, people in the care providers, whether you are working in a hospital or you're working in the police department. It's something that has to do with a child, uh, injury to a child. 
is one of the most traumatic incidents that we can have. And what happens is we end up um, stacking these traumatic incidents. And so in the emergency department, quite often when there was a loss of life with a child, um, it hits and it impacts. And if you don't have a, a space to debrief that critical incident, if no one is creating space to say, you have emotion around that event, and what is that emotion and allow you the space to process that emotion. What happens is it gets stuffed and then it gets stacked and then the next incident happens and then the next incident, eventually it will become a critical mass and it, it ends up exploding in very unhealthy ways. And we've seen that in a lot of our care providers. We've seen lots of high rates of alcoholism, um, you know, depression. There are lots of things that happen because you can't separate those things out. But there is a way to process it in a healthy manner that allows you to have longevity on the job. And that's what I'm really passionate about is people have chosen to go into their profession. They should have the tools that they need to remain in their profession. And being a chaplain, offering spiritual support and spiritual care is an incredible tool to offer people so that they can have longevity in their chosen life. Yeah, I love it, especially in that group setting, too, because, you know, it's not only one person who's going through that. So then not only do you have the stacking individually, but you have the stacking across the group, which Absolutely. compounds the problem, right? Absolutely. And corporately, and I think that the biggest part of it is taking the shame out because there are kind of old school where it's like, just don't let that affect you. Yeah. You, they yeah, went get through over medical it. school and it's like you weren't allowed to cry. I have physicians tell me that all the time and they, they see me walk. They don't on have the time unit. to cry. Turn around. Right. The next patient's coming next in. Patient, that's right. You hit reset and you walk out of there like nothing happened and you walk in and you better have a smile because guess what? They're paying us now on the rating that we're going to get right. on it's how our happy customer we service. Were. Yes. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it just dehumanizes us and it takes out that, that level of, of being. And so we are bringing humanity back to healthcare. We're bringing humanity back into um, all these different areas. And, and so I'm, I'm excited for the future of spiritual care. I'm excited for the, the future of what we can do as chaplains, how we can help to integrate who we are, help care providers process what is going on in their lives. And that, that big part is taking the shame out because we're not meant to just tough it out. We're not meant to just grind it out and, and get over it and get on to the next one. Um, removing that shame is so, so powerful. So that's like one of my big things is shame resilient environments, shame resistant. Well, yeah. And you bring up a really, I mean, I know I am promising to close at some point, but you bring up an interesting point, even just thinking about the uh, spiritual care as a growth field. Because I think, you know, look how many yoga studios there are now. Look how many juice bars there are. Look how many, Absolutely. you know, and, you know, any kind of spiritual stuff you can turn, you know, turn, go on your Google and search pretty much anything spiritual and you'll get, you know, 10 pages sure. of, you know, high level stuff. So I, I appreciate that you're saying that because I think there's also an opening, you know, mm -hmm. things just have to evolve. The cycle has to come, you know, there has to be the opening and it seems as though you're well positioned in that space now to be able to offer people really good support, but also to create these programs that, that push up for people thinking about coming into this field. I think it seems like there's nothing but opportunity. Yeah. I see it just growing and exploding and really starting to cross over every field because 
we're all whole beings. Where don't you need spiritual care? Mm -hmm. There isn't a space or a sector where you don't need it. Actually, the most exciting place is um, workplace chaplains, marketplace chaplains. And those exist also? They are a up and coming field. So marketplace chaplain. So we have studies again, it's, um, if you can keep a healthy workplace environment, uh, have your employees debrief, debrief stress. I mean, it can be just workplace stress and having a chaplain that's just present. That's there. The The greatest part about being a chaplain is that you have privileged conversation. So every conversation that I have with someone is privileged. It's protected legally? by law legally. Okay. So uh, even for the officers, it, it create it just creates such a safe space to be authentic, to be vulnerable, to say, here's what I'm really going through. This is what I'm really dealing with. And you don't have to worry about the backlash because it's now it's very different from talking to HR, very different from talking to HR, very different from talking to a psychologist or your coworker or your coworker where, you know, we do train others to do peer support. But again, coworker it's it's not privileged and so um and not only is it not privileged it might be it might, it might be has to might be. go <laughs> wildfire right um but yeah marketplace chaplains i mean think about that if you're a business owner and you want a healthy workplace environment you want a place where your your employees are going to thrive and want to come in you're going to reduce your absenteeism you're going to reduce your turnover rate we were just talking about this. You're going to reduce that on your bottom line mm-hmm. um, because you're not investing in training new people and you don't have this kind of rapid turnover and you have a space where people are wanting to come in and um, they're able to be all of who they are. They can bring all of their person into that workspace. Of course. I mean, we're going to, we're going to explode in creativity. We're going to explode in dynamic um just evolution of who we are as people. Yeah. It seems like, you know, when you do, when you're in corporate, you do, is it outward bound? Those kind of things where you go off and you learn to trust each other and work as a unit and all that. But there seems to be in this area, an opportunity for spiritual leaders like yourself, but even, you know, people coming up into the field Mm -hmm. to create all those kind of programs. I mean, I would go out and pitch that, right. I'd call, (laughs) call, like you're saying, even small businesses could afford a one day, you know, group Absolutely. retreat with their, with their team or, to, you know, to bring them inside the workplace or even just come and do a spiritual hour every Wednesday or something, right? There's exactly. this is how I think as an entrepreneur, but th- there's just opportunity uh, ongoing in this field. And I would say, because you've mentioned several times, your, your route has been non-traditional, mm-hmm. somewhat circuitous, you know, not based on dotting every I along the way and not asking for permission from everyone. And I think so, so many times people don't take a, 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 an assignment or they don't push themselves because they're waiting for someone to give them permission to do what they have been gifted right. to do. And there are probably many people listening to this who have been gifted and you want to call it spiritual. You can call it whatever, whatever, you know, suits mm-hmm. you, but to give people support in their lives in whatever ways. And if you're a business person, you could do it like I just suggested in yeah. a business way, or you can do it from a faith-based background or, or whatnot. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just, well, when you, when you bring it under the the blanket of spirituality and you just say we're, we're spiritual in Being nature, spiritual beings. we're spiritual beings. We're spiritual in nature. And that's, that's enough. I don't have to define it any more than that because then I can meet you in that space and um, we can figure it out together. But you have to have people who are willing, like I said, to um, keep their own worldview to the side, withhold it 
and um, come in with positivity, come in with just an attitude of love that says, okay, how can I love best? How can I do that? How can I love you well? And um, I think that if we can come in and do that in that space and under the the cloak of saying we're all spiritual, um, we have this part of us and we want to honor that part of us and bring all of us to the table. I love, it. I love it. I think it's amazing and awesome what you do. I'm just always so amazed as you walk around in this life and you will have on, like you said, like a police uniform and then the next day you'll be all dressed up and the next day you'll be in maybe in your sweats and you're leading a program. This morning we were at a program for, for you with all that you do. So I'm just acknowledging who you are in the world. Yeah. It's very, very incredible. Mm-hmm. So as we close out, I imagine there'll probably be a lot of comments on this talk because there are so many aspects aspects of what you do that are non-traditional that you just really took the bull by the horns really and not and not in a forceful way and I want to make that clear because you I think were really keen on um asking or listening for the guidance and yeah. right yeah and I think that that was a really big turning point for me was that when I became really teachable and um, having a, a real teachable spirit. Was that age? Do you think that you had a certain age or was that some ex- that just based on the experience where, as you mentioned, I think, I think it was a combination. Um, I think I was, I was, I think I was trainable before, but there's a difference between trainable and teachable. Um, uh, that willingness, like I said, that willingness to really be submitted to somebody um, and let them be an authority over you. It's, it's kind of like, what? No, I think everybody's instant, rises up like, mm. but when I can look at somebody and say, the fruit of your life is proof enough for me. That's the fruit I want. So I'm willing to do what you're asking from me. And, um, and I think that that's just another great key of leadership. And I, I said it this morning at the event and, um, I lead by example and I, I don't ever ask people that I'm leading to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. And if I'm not willing to... It's almost not fair because you will do anything. (laughs) (laughs) But if I'm not willing to give sacrificially, if I'm not willing to take the time to do the the kind of things that I'm asking other people to do, then how... It's hard for me to, to put myself out there so everything that I ask others to do that I'm leading, I, I'm, I'm doing myself. I truly am. And other people, and also for their own growth. For their own right? growth. So things that you would ask people to do, you know, like you said, sometimes you think of yourself as a coach. So even right. things that you would ask people to do, you've already right. made so sure that not, you're doing I may not have done the exact it. thing that they're doing, but I've done it in some level on my life, mm-hmm. right? So if I'm asking you to step out of your comfort zone, if I'm saying to you, hey, I, I see this area of your life and, and, and I think that you can make a change here. And I'm going to ask you to step out of your comfort zone and I'm going to ask you to do this. And um, it means that I've already done that somewhere in my life. It may not be in that exact area, but I have already done that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that that's a key component to a, another great quality of a leader is that um, I have to be willing to have done the work myself as well. That everything that I'm asking somebody else to do, I, I have faced those things and I'm willing to continue to face them. And I, I think I keep accountability. So I always stay in a relationship where even though I'm leading people, I have someone who's leading me. Mm. And so I keep in this kind of continuous relationship so that I finish well. And when you say someone who's leading me, just to clarify, you mean an actual person, not like God. 
because I mean we know an actual that, person. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know, I know that there's, you know, there ultimately. Is. Sure. There's a but, higher authority. Right. But, uh, but no, an actual physical. Um, you always maintain that. I always maintain that. Yeah. I, it's accountability to me. Accountability and um, support or really just for you at this level, accountability. Make sure that. I think at this level, it's accountability. It's, um, it's making sure that I am still pressing myself, that I'm still pushing, that yeah. I'm still, um, I'm not settling, that I'm, I'm, and you know what? We always have blind spots. Completely. I always have a blind oh, spot. And you're developing new ones all the time, which is so fabulous, I right? I need but... other people in my life mm-hmm. to say to me, Heather, I, I, I see this blind spot. You don't see it, but I see it. And here's where I think you can make a change. Here's where I think. And so that is high levels of trust and high levels of respect. And you just don't give that to anybody. I, I say choose very wisely when you're choosing these people that you want to place in your life because we all have a blind spot and um, it's not always easy to hear what your blind spot is. So choose wisely because of how vulnerable you are. Exactly. Yeah. Because you're going to, you need to expose yourself and, and you don't just want to do that to anybody. So choose very wisely and who you are allowing yourself to come into accountability with and then allow them to speak truth into your life. And um, it's not always easy to hear where you've done something I think it never is. It never, it, it doesn't. I don't care who you are. I've heard it a lot of times and it never gets easy. Right. It's the same. Every and time it I hear it. It doesn't matter how much success, like, success you have. It's just, yeah. It There's stings. a thousand. It, it always stings. It's either I knew that or shoot, why did I do that? Or, mm, right. you know, I thought I had that. Yeah. So, um, you know, just knowing that the person that you have that with truly has your best interests at heart. That, mm-hmm. That's my encouragement is to find that person that, you know, really has your best interest at heart and then allow them to speak truth into your life and um, listen to them. You might go a different path. And and I think that that's the, the biggest lesson from my life is that there is no one route. And um, even when, you know, it's game, set, match and um, everybody counted me out. It was the comeback. I mean, this is the comeback of all comebacks. Oh, yeah. You're the comeback kid. To finish where I am at right now, um, coming from where I was and knowing how uh, I had hit self-destruct in my 20s and just saying, wow, there's redemption and nothing is impossible. You can do this. Yeah. And it's not it's not going to be that way. And it doesn't have to be that way. And you can write whatever story you want. And you just keep writing it chapter after chapter after chapter. It's That's really it. inspiring, really encouraging. That's it. It's just one good choice on top of another good choice. And I worked with a lot of people in recovery. And that's, that's just it. You know, how do you build this new reality? Well, the reality is ma- being made one choice at a time. And then many choices from now you look back and you're like, I'm living in the reality I was always designed to live in because I'm making these choices, but you have to live out of this new identity. Yeah. Yeah. You have to live out of that identity. If you, for so many years, I lived out of a lie identity. I I believe lies about myself Mm -hmm. that just weren't true. And I lived out of those lies and I found myself in a reality that I was never meant for. But once I began to live out of my true identity, I'm now in the reality that I want to be in. Well, that you're meant to be. That in, I'm meant right? to be in. Too? That I'm created for. Right. Like, that I'm and designed you know that. for. You know that because you're living, obviously you're living joyously. You're living graciously with gratitude. You have, you know, very successful High family, satisfaction. successful relationships, all that. Right. Yeah. No, it's really, really inspiring. Okay. So 
I, now I promise. Now we're going to get to the, the last, probably one question. Okay. So I think you're, I think I know what you're going to say, but maybe I don't. What, what do you love the best about mm-hmm. what you do? I think that I love the best about what I do is, um, like I said, I, the more I hear people's narratives, the more I fall in love with humanity and, and just who we are as, as people. So I think what I love the most is that I, I get to share that with people. And it's almost like I get to live multiple lives because I am integrating who they are into who I am. And I'm learning from them. I'm talking to people at the end of their life who are ready to leave this planet and go to whatever destination they have deemed. And um, I'm asking them, looking back, what would you say to me? And what wisdom do you have? And so I have this like incredible opportunity to gain all the wisdom of so many lives lived and hear their perspectives and see their heartbreaks, rejoice in their victories. And I think that that is what keeps me going every day is I love the, how I never know what I'm going to walk into. So for me, that's really exciting because I, I like for other excitement. people that would be terrifying. So it's good to know who it's you are. It's terrifying, right? exciting, mm-hmm. but I love that. I never know what I'm going to walk into and I never know what gem I'm going to take away from it. But each encounter has been absolutely transformational, even if it's a small way or a a significant way, um, there's been transformation for me. And so being able to be with people who are willing to share with you their life and their story, it's just beautiful. Yeah, it probably doesn't get much better than that, right? No. Okay, so this is the last because I was, I thought it was some some kind of version of that that I which I love. So I, again, just appreciate who you are and who, what you do in this world. It's really amazing, but really who you are. I just we love it. So since you live multiple lives, if you could choose something that's not even at all related to what you do, you couldn't choose this. What do you think, given who you are, that you would choose? If you could, you said you're like, if I, I oh, if I were younger, right. I could do that or I yeah. could go back. Or da, da, da. What would it be? I think that, um, I think when I was young, I always said I would love to be a professional student. Like I would love to actually um, be a litigator. Uh, I would love to train to be a litigator, but not actually practice litigation. I would love to train to be a physician, but not actually be a practicing doctor. <laughs> Is this a thing? <laughs> Can you, can you do that? I went to business school with a kid who just, I think he had like three master's degrees, but it, can you, can you, know, you do something? I, I don't, that? I don't know that it's actually a viable, you know, sustainable lifestyle, but I but think like that a professor, like, I don't know. I, I don't know. But I, I know that when I was younger, I used to say that, like, I, I loved the pursuit learning. of learning. I just, that that's one of my top strengths is learner. And I think that I love the pursuit of learning of mastering something new and acquiring new skill sets. I, I love that because I want to keep evolving. I want to keep growing. I want to keep knowing more and not become content in just what I've already achieved. And so, um, but I do go back to that. I think that, uh, 
I don't know, maybe a litigator. Yeah, I, th- I see. Well, it's really helpful, right, to think about because you're the same person-ish, you yeah. know, as you've evolved, your story's evolved, but there's certain just qualities in you that would exist. And so I'm thinking if someone's listening to this and they think, well, I'm not really faith-based or that really doesn't light my fire, but I, I resonate with like a lot of the things that she's saying. I'm That's sure. coming for me and what, what, what else would I be thinking about? So yeah, that's why I'm asking just to see what other opportunities there are and I could easily see you. Being a lifelong learner and being a professional student, if you could get a good benefactor, <laughs> I totally see you doing that. But yeah, a litigator or something in law or something where you're having to distinguish, you know, information and being very specific, but also being very intimate with people, being vulnerable, all that. Absolutely. And I just, I love justice mm-hmm. too. So I'm just a champion of justice. And so, and I like that juxtaposition. I love being able to see things from every angle and look at it from multi-facets and say, okay, where do we land here? Mm-hmm. So um, again, though, I think now with as much of my journey of self-awareness, like how, I don't know that I could actually land on a position anymore. Right. Because right. I, I can see so many sides of it that, and I have a heart of compassion for kind of each side. Mm-hmm. So my compassion is high. My empathy is high. And I, I say, okay, but you know, what was driving the forces to bring this one to this side? What is justice? And what is, right. So then, then you can get into a whole nother dialogue. So maybe philosopher. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's right. Well, I'm waiting for the book because as we're having this whole conversation, I'm wondering why, why you haven't written the book. And I'm sure it's just time because the book is going to be awesome. I'm just going to speak that out into the world Mm. because I really, I'm waiting for the book. I want to hear about all the stories. I want to, you know, read more about the program. I want to see what it's like for you to go, you know, just to like walk a day in the life or, you know, 10 days in the life of Heather Riley, because that I think would be fascinating. It has been fascinating talking to you. And so again, I appreciate it so much. I know that everyone listening to this will really appreciate your candor and your honesty and just the ability to express who you are, what it is that you bring to the table. And then Mm. again, people can just look and see one to be inspired and to be engaged in their lives. And then, um, you know, if this speaks to them, then they can move on forward. So really, thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Oh my goodness. Thank you. Can I give one last little thing? I'm just going to say this. Yes. um, I found that as I focus on my strengths, I can have exponential growth. When I focus on my weaknesses, I, I get incremental growth. But what's also made me a great leader is that I understand what my weaknesses are and I understand what my strengths are. And then I build teams around me that are diversified. And I build teams of people that are strong where I'm weak. And um, that's a great, great quality. Yeah, in it's a like leader. don't teach your eagle to swim, right? Absolutely. If you're thinking about being a leader, I think, I think really the the role is a leader. And if you're going to be a leader, it could be in any venue. It doesn't have to be faith-based. Wherever you're going to be a leader, um, understand the type of leadership that you're pursuing. And this is, this is my nugget for you. And that is understand your strengths, understand your weaknesses, go for your strengths. You're going to get exponential growth and then build a team. Don't be too insecure to build a team around you that's super strong at the things you're weak in. Don't let your pride and your ego get in the way. Uh, Cultivate their talents, bring them up and groom them and you will be more successful than you ever dreamt of being. 
I'm sure that's great advice. I'll I'll probably be the first one to <laughs> who needs to take it, but it's true, right? I mean, right. it really is. So thank you. That yeah. is, especially now. I'm just going to say this on the last thing because, unfortunately, I think we've spent so many years, uh, even with kids, you know, like trying to. Oh, you're not so great at math. Let's make sure that you're better. Well, yes, you know, let's make sure you have the exposure. But what do you yeah. love to do? Like, what do you speak? To, what speaks to you? That's and right. I always think about, you know, whatever you loved in fifth grade is probably what you should be doing right now. Pursue your passions, pursue your passions, know your, know your strengths and go for them. Cultivate those, work on those because you will explode. And so I want to thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. I am just in awe of you just as much as we get to journey together. I love to see every part of you and I'm really excited for this podcast series of what it's going to mean in lives of people who people are, are amazing, it. right? It, they're, amazing, they're amazing. And you're pulling out the stories and you're allowing us to share what we've done. And so thank you for giving me a platform to share about who I am and the journey that I've been on. Well, you are a thousand percent welcome because I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed this so much. So thanks for being with us here today, Heather Riley. So here we are again. And as you know, I like to give you the fast track on these various career goals. So I was with Heather Riley, a chaplain, and she had so many amazing things to say. And here are the reminders of that conversation and starting with all about the opportunities to be a chaplain. For people thinking about coming into this field, I think it seems like there's nothing but opportunity. Yeah. I see it just growing and exploding and really starting to cross over every field because we're all whole beings. Where don't you need spiritual care? Mm -hmm. There isn't a space or a sector where you don't need it. Actually, the most exciting place is um, workplace chaplains, marketplace chaplains. The, the greatest part about being a chaplain is that you have privileged conversation. So every conversation that I have with someone is privileged. It's protected legally? by law. Legally. Okay. Think about that. If you're a business owner and you want a healthy workplace environment. You want a place where your your employees are going to thrive and want to come in. You're going to reduce your absenteeism. You're going to reduce your turnover rate. We were just talking about this. You're going to reduce that on your bottom line mm -hmm. um, because you're not investing in training new people and you don't have this kind of rapid turnover. And you have a space where people are wanting to come in and um, they're able to be all of who they are. They can bring all of their person into that workspace. Of course. Right. So that is really a, a cool look at the way you could work as a chaplain. I think of it as just being, and this is again, my naivete coming through as being more of a religious pursuit. And it's not at all, actually. It's more of a, a spiritual uplifting kind of pursuit. And along with that, it's a leadership role. So listen to Heather talking about, I'm going to lead with this whole conversation that we talked about around leadership and, you know, coming into knowing who you are so that you can then go into this work. So I'm going to lead you here with this, with the leadership piece, and then we'll go into some of the brass tacks of, you know, what's required to become a pastor or chaplain, what really that even is, and then, you know, take you out with some of her tips and advice. So here's what she's talking about in terms of leadership. I think every leader knows that there is a price to be paid for leadership. And like um, a personal price, a personal or a, price, yeah, okay. right. that there is a sacrifice sacrifice. Yeah. And, um, and either the, the people you're leading are going to pay 
or you're going to pay. I see what you mean. Does that, does that make mm-hmm. sense? And so for me, it was a very pivotal moment where I, I began to say, the kind of leader that I'm going to be is the kind of leader that um, determines the amount of success I have by the amount of success that's achieved by those that I'm leading. That my own success is going to become inconsequential mm-hmm. to the success of those that I am um, bringing up, basically. So how do you get to be a leader? And how do you, you could use, apply this anywhere, whether you're going to be a chaplain or something else, but how do you get to be a leader? Here's Heather. For so many years, I lived out of a lie identity. I, I believe lies about myself mm-hmm. that just weren't true. And I lived out of those lies and I found myself in a reality that I was never meant for. But once I began to live out of my true identity, I'm now in the reality that I want to be in. And then how does that reality play out in terms of success? You know, how do you build this new reality? Well, the reality is being made one choice at a time. And then many choices from now you look back and you're like, I'm living in the reality I was always designed to live in. One choice at a time. I thought that was a really, really important point that she made. I mean, she's making it as a chaplain. And if you are around this person being, you will understand that she is just really an even person. You feel like you're, you're just kind of calm. Imagine me calm. <laughs> you feel like you're kind of calm when she's there. And it's because of all this work that she's done in her career. So she did not come from a background of a bunch of churchgoers where she, you know, had this great, you know, dad and this amazing mom. And they, you know, showed her this exceptional life of service within a church context. That is not at all her background. So please, as you're listening to that full interview, keep that in the back of your mind and listen to what she has to say about redemption. Even when, you know, it's game, set, match, and um, everybody counted me out. It was the comeback. I mean, this is the comeback of all comebacks. Oh, yeah. You're the comeback kid. To finish where I am at right now, um, coming from where I was and knowing how uh, I had hit self-destruct in my 20s and just saying, wow, there's redemption and nothing is impossible. You can do this. So that's she's saying that for herself and she's saying that for all of us, which was, I thought, awesome. It's just a great just a great reminder that that is what life is about. Okay, so this is key. This is, I think, the biggest piece of advice that she gave throughout the whole uh, interview, and it can apply to chaplain work or, or any career. But keep in mind, as she's saying this, she's saying this because she gets this from her life career goal experience as a chaplain. I found that as I focus on my strengths, I can have exponential growth. When I focus on my weaknesses, I, I get incremental growth. But what's also made me a great leader is that I understand what my weaknesses are and I understand what my strengths are. And then I build teams around me that are diversified. And I build teams of people that are strong where I'm weak. And um, it's a great, great quality it's in a like leader. It's like don't teach your eagle to swim, right? Absolutely. If you're thinking about being a leader, I think, I think really the, the role is a leader. And if you're going to be a leader, it could be in any venue. It doesn't have to be faith-based. Wherever you're going to be a leader, um, understand the type of leadership that you're pursuing. And this is, this is my nugget for you. And that is understand your strengths, understand your weaknesses, Go for your strengths. You're going to get exponential growth and then build a team. Don't be too insecure to build a team around you that's super strong at the things you're weak in. 
Don't let your pride and your ego get in the way. Uh, Cultivate their talents, bring them up and groom them and you will be more successful than you ever dreamt of being. I love, love how she said, don't be too insecure to build a team. So flip that and say, by building a team in any of these aspects, you are showing your security and your, you know, fundamental belief in who you are. So how do you, how do you get there? How do you become a chaplain? What even is a chaplain? I thought that being a chaplain was just kind of like being a a pastor, only with a different name. So she helped us out there. So what is a chaplain, really? They actually are quite different. Okay. So uh, a pastor would be someone who's coming from a a Christian type of background. Um, they would mainly be versed in just uh, Christian theology, Christian worldview. But the what I found when I went through clinical pastoral education is that there truly is a difference. So as a pastor, people would come to me; they would want to have an answer. And I would, as the pastor, need to have that answer from a biblical worldview. So as a chaplain, I'm actually trained across every major religion uh, because we work in healthcare, We work in different fields. We encounter a whole spectrum of people and we have to be ready to address their issues from their worldview and not bring my own worldview into it. So that... Um... I'm just going to put this in here because it's something that might get lost in the full conversation. When she says she works in healthcare, so you see she's trained across all these various religions and her context as a chaplain is not necessarily a religious context. And when I say religious, I mean like, you know, oh, you're a Catholic. Oh, you're a Muslim. Oh, you know, like that. It's not, um, she's able to be flexible across different belief patterns and different beliefs that people have. So, um, when you're th- when she talks about working in healthcare, what she's saying is that she works in hospice, so that um, that she would get called in by you know hospice companies and then get paid by those companies to do this type of work. So I just want to bridge that gap as you're listening to the conversation. That's um, that's one of the pieces. Just like a you know a doctor would get it get paid to come in and do a, a consult. Her her work is related like that. Okay, so that's pastor, chaplain, and now a little bit on where does what's a minister and kind of what, what are the levels of that? Ordination is another level, uh, higher level. Okay. So for us, I started with my license, I see. and then two years later, I was ordained. Um, I now hold incle- ecclesiastical endorsement as well. So I think as you progress, it's kind of like, what's the next, what's mm-hmm. the next, what's the next in this journey? Right. So I was asking her in context of that about, you know, the different certifications that you could go through. And then we talked a little bit about this. Well, do you need that to do certain things? And I was talking about it specifically because she does work in healthcare and you are um, essentially you'll end up billing, you know, health insurance companies, you know, on the backside or uh, Medicare, et cetera. But you don't it's not necessarily the the higher level certifications that you need to even be a, a billable you know chaplain so just to it's kind of interesting to the way that this conversation unfolds and the way that you can think about it as a career goal so she had done some missionary work and i was curious well is that kind of a, a platform is that a starting point for where you might start your faith career goal and listen to heather giving us an idea about where the missionary work fits in I don't know that um, that's necessarily the way that you would get to be a chaplain. Okay. I think that um, definitely you want to look, do you, do I want to serve others? 
I think that's a big part of it. You know, if you want to live a life of service, because leadership really is serving, I think that that's one of the greatest keys that I discovered early on in my leadership. Right. So then how much schooling do you need? Like, where do you go? Because I just didn't realize that this was as academic as a of a pursuit as it really is. And when she started talking about her schooling and the level of education that she has in various ways, it's not like you, you know, go to university and you get a divinity degree. You can definitely do that. You can get a degree in theology, you can get a, you know, a divinity degree or be a, you know, doctorate of, you know, in of divinity, I think you would say. Um, And a lot of people, that's a very traditional route. She took a non-traditional route, again, encouraging people. She did not have an undergrad. She was able to um, petition to be included in this master's program based on her ability. So there's just always a way to go about doing this. But um, listen, as she talks about doing the master's degree. At that time, I said, okay, I'll pursue my master's degree. And I figured out there was a place where I could do that. Without the, without an without, undergrad. Without the undergrad. Mm-hmm. I was able to um, test and show that I could be proficient in master's level writing. And so they, um, I petitioned their board and their board reviewed my application and deemed that I would be acceptable. For Did anyone program. else petition their board or is that just a special skill that you have? I, I think that <laughs> I say that lovingly because I really think that it's so important for people to hear this because it's a very inspiring story. The, the door is never closed. The answer is not yet. Right. Not right now mm-hmm. or maybe later or, you know, because you're just finding ways to just keep taking the messages, taking the learning, getting the coaching and finding a way to make it work. Finding a way to make it work. I think, I think that's part of my, um, like I said, like that competitive drive, that, that, that part of me that says I won't be denied. I'm going to, I'm going to have that. And I think that the seeds for that were really formed in me as a a younger girl. I was a ballerina. I danced in high levels at, at the Joffrey Ballet Company in New York City. So There were certain things in me, certain drives in me that uh, are natural. That's just who I am. That's how I'm hardwired. That's who I'm designed to be. And that's okay to be that. And it's just harnessing that. And then it's saying, okay, how do I use that for good? How do I help humanity with that kind of gifting? Interesting that she says it as as a gift. So in this conversation, again, this is a very academic pursuit. So here she's going to give you an idea about some of that, the academic side of it. This one was a three-part interview, part on your doctrine, part on your polity of the denomination, and then one part on um, your personal life and leadership and how you live, basically. And you have a panel that you interview in front of, and it was about a five-hour I was going to say, is it, is it as stressful as doing your like PhD orals? It is. It was extremely stressful. I would think so. You got to be ready because all of your doctrine, you have to know inside and out. Mm-hmm. I had to theologically be able to defend every position that I had. Again, what, why I had all the answers. Right. Thank goodness you had them then. <laughs> I had them then. Them. So you had to be able to, you, you theologically had to be prepared. So I could theologically like defend. scripture and. Exactly. Okay. Yes. So I could theologically defend every position that I had in about 24 points of doctrine. Right. So, and that was, she was talking about the specifics for the, the past, 
pastoral training um, to be a to be a pastor. She was an assistant pastor, and we talked a lot about that, which doesn't come up in this excerpt, so I'll give it to you here. We talked a lot about the opportunities in uh, for women in the chaplain side versus the pastor side, because there are only a few denominations that will um, ordain, sanction, whatever word you want to use, a woman to be in a, a leadership role at the pulpit. So, um, so that you have to I think, you know, she gave us the three examples when you listen to the interview, as you listen, you just take a note of that. Um, So the chaplain work actually opens up this field significantly for women. And in fact, she talked about this feminine energy that is often required in this type of work and how important that was uh, to be able to have that, whether you're a man or woman, you you need this level of this type of energy in you. Um, so listen to the way that she bridges the gap from the pastoral training, which was very academic and also very service oriented. Don't get me wrong. That's all part of it. But the chaplain work brings in this another whole layer of complexity to your soul, I think, the way that she talks about it. So I'm in with... Um patients, I'm in with families, I'm actually doing the work. And then what you do is you come back and you reflect on the work that you've done. And it's a journey of discovery. And it's not so much about what the other people said in the room, as much as it is about what I said. And why did I say that? Why did I respond the way that I responded? Why did I react the way I reacted? What was driving that? And so it's this very deep internal journey into your own soul to find out who you are, why do you do what you do, and just heighten your levels of self-awareness so that you can actually respond rather than react. And it becomes this great skill. This great skill. Imagine if you took the time to look at your walls, look at your filters that you have and looking at people and, you know, judge. this has come up in several conversations. So I'm just going to bring it up here again. And that a lot of people who are really well developed have have worked on this skill of getting rid of their filters. Um, not you can't get rid of them completely, but knowing, being aware of them, and then um, being able to interact in life and in work in your career, especially knowing those filters are there. So, um, what does that look like in terms of transitioning into being a chaplain? And I don't think that I would be the chaplain that I am without having been the pastor that I was. I think the incredible part of the journey from uh, clinical pastoral education, as I explained, you know, what were those walls that I had to deconstruct? Um, and and through that process for me, was it was a very big challenge, especially coming from such an evangelical um, Pentecostal background to really wrestle through those issues with God and say, who am I and how do I maintain my integrity and how do I still love people that think differently and see things differently? And, um, and so that was like this huge journey for me. So now you're getting a sense of how this has worked, at least for Heather. Heather started as a pastor with, you know, pastor education, pastor, clinical pastoral education training. She did like a residency. And then that transitions into a chaplain. You know, if you're a pastor, you are educated in a certain um, theology, in a certain way of thinking about 
uh, belief systems. And then as a chaplain, that view is expanded. Your, you can have your preference, sure, in whatever that is, but your education is around various belief systems and around you and around not what do they believe, but what do I believe? And why do I believe that? And why would I act that way? And why would I say that? So it, it's, just a, it's just a different paradigm in, in terms of this faith-based career that you would have. And again, especially as a woman, there's a lot of opportunity in chaplain work. And I also want to bring out the various industries where this chaplain work can apply. I think of a chaplain as I, you remember seeing him in the hospital, there's like a little room that says like chaplain on the side. And you're like, who's in there? You know, is anyone in there? <laughs> you never see anyone in there, right? And you open it, it's like got, got like a stained glass mirror in it. We know what I mean? Like, just whatever, what's going on there? So she talks about that workplace chaplains, you know, she works up with the police department, but what she loves is working with care providers. And that's where she ended up taking this career goal all down the line. So this is, I think, if you're a person who is academic, and you love school, and you love learning things, and you love applying things and taking tests and finding out more about yourself, and then doing more and working, working on the academic piece, you're gonna love this. Like you're gonna, you're just gonna thrive in this type of environment, because it is very academic based to begin with. And then as you pursue this goal, you grow so much in a personal reflective way that you can just be that much more of service and that much more valuable, which probably would tend to mean you have that much more avenues to get paid for the work that you're doing. So um, here's just a little I'm going to inter, inter put this like in the little piece just to give you an idea of who Heather is. And just remember that it is really never too late. And not having a formal degree has never been in your way. Has it been in your way? It hasn't been in my way, which has been really quite incredible. Um, it's it's kind of like this non-traditional mm-hmm. path. And I, I just want to encourage anybody who's listening right now that it's never too late. And um, it's never done and it's never over because there can be an incredible position just for you that you have been going through life to get to that final point. Right. So what then is that final point of life, which is kind of curious that that's the ending of that last excerpt. And now we're going to talk end of life, because one of the things where a chaplain would get involved in is in that end of life. It's not even a conversation, just that end of life time. And uh, what's her kind of view on that? And how does she approach that work? I'm talking to people at the end of their life who are ready to leave this planet and go to whatever destination they have deemed. And um, I'm asking them, looking back, what would you say to me? And what wisdom do you have? And so I have this like incredible opportunity to gain all the wisdom of so many lives lived and hear their perspectives and see their heartbreaks, rejoice in their victories And I think that that is what keeps me going every day is I love the, how I never know what I'm going to walk into. So for me, that's really exciting. Right. That's cool. This is like now giving you an idea of what she actually does. And then how does she get this ability? Where does that come from? I have very quick skills. I have to know right away when I walk into that room I'm, I'm making instant assessments and reading people and reading people. Um, I'm reading their body language. I'm reading how they're talking to me. Uh, so I'm making kind of split second 
judgments. And it really comes from experience. Right. So this is kind of cool. I think I think there's so many interesting things about this profession. But as you um, go along in this profession, some professions, you just get more experience by the types of things that you see. So this is one of those things that you get more experience by the levels where you see those experiences, which is kind of different if you can make that distinction in your mind also. I mean, she gets to talk to all these people, end of life, and then, um, you know, just kind of, she gets to ingest all of that as like now that is richness of experience that she then can internalize, which is super cool and use then in her career. So how does she deal with all that? Imagine you're having these end of life situations with people and with their families, and some people are okay with this, you know, have a better, just a different way to take on this transition, if you will. Uh, so how does she work around the emotional aspect of it? I just, I love people. I, I, I truly do. I love people. The more that I hear people's narratives, the more I fall in love with them. And the more I fall in love with humanity, even in our brokenness and our woundedness and everything that we have going on, I still, at my core, I love people. And, um, to hear their life story and, and become invested in them. Again, it's that, where's my boundary? Because now I'm, now I'm invested in you. And um, now you've become my friend. And now I've taken you into part of who I am. And now I have to release you. Right. So that is a really interesting thing to think about. If you can be like, always think about as we're having these conversations, who do you have to be to be this person to be in this job to do the things that are required for this career. And here she is talking about a little bit, we mentioned talking about the um, how she helps the care providers and how this really was a big piece of her thesis, even in working on her educational piece is um, supporting the care providers with a compassion fatigue, which was an interesting phrase. But you imagine if that's what you're doing often supporting people is that you you need a little break yourself. And that's what I'm really passionate about is people have chosen to go into their profession. They should have the tools that they need to remain in their profession. And being a chaplain, offering spiritual support and spiritual care is an incredible tool to offer people so that they can have longevity in their chosen life. Right. So there she's talking about. So she works with the police department and what her role there is, you know, sometimes she'll get called out to, you know, go on, you know, seeing if something is going on where it would be helpful to have her with someone from the community. But her real role is supporting the police officers. And this is interesting because if you've been with us on this podcast for other interviews, you know that we've talked to police officers who say like, you know, it can be stressful. You know, you're out there seeing things happen and we see, you know, dead bodies and, you know, murders and child abuse and things that are really, I mean, emotionally draining, difficult concepts and difficult. It's in you. It's in front of you. It's, you can't hide from it. And then she is that person as a chaplain. So think about even we're talking about the all the careers in the police department, we didn't even put chaplain, but you could add chaplain to that because she is a member of our local police department. And then how she works with the care providers is in that in that hospital setting. So you have these companies that are hospice companies and any anyone who's had this experience knows that hospice comes in really when it is the end, you know, the last few weeks, maybe a couple months, you know, when it looks like, okay, this, this is not going to turn around, right? And then she comes in to really usher that family along that process. So a hospice company will then hire her 
to do this work. And then the hospice company, you know, gets paid the way they do as we're talking about it in terms of insurance and all that. Um, so a lot of just cool things to think about this. And even remembering that a, a chaplain is a person who can be a leader, can lead teams, can be competitive, can be driven, ambitious, you know, whoever you're bringing into this, if if you are someone who can deal with the academic piece of it, with the um, emotional piece of it, with the support piece of it, and wants to live a life of service, you don't have to. You don't have to not make money. <laughs> I just want to make that clear. You don't have to just say like, "Oh, well, I'm not going to be a chaplain because like I don't know if I can support my family." You can a thousand percent support a family. You can write books. You can like help so many people in so many ways, and that is remuneration for you. It will come. Um, so I'm going to close with a couple of Heather's little uh, pieces because she's such a such a team builder, such a like a you got this, such a you know go getter kind of girl. But she really um, supports everyone. So I want to be very clear: Heather's background is not again; it is not Mayberry. It is not you know the whole intact you know the four the family of four on the Disney cruise. That is not how she grew up. So. Um, so having her telling you these little pieces, I think is, is awesome. And I learned a lot from listening to her on these couple of points. So listen to her as she's talking about people's journeys. I think each one of us has our own journey. Okay. I think that we can look at other people's journeys and see where they've stepped along the way and say, is that a trail I can follow? Is that a pathway that can lead me there? Right. So, so it's up to you to take the path, but then so many people and she talked to this too she had great mentors find yours she had great mentors along the way but how she did that was um was looking for them so here's the final piece on that and i think that that is a critical quality and a critical characteristic for success is that there has to come a moment where you have to be teachable and you have to submit yourself to somebody else and say will you walk with me on this journey? And I'm going to listen to what you say, even if I don't agree with it 100% or I can't see how it's going to achieve the end result. I'm going to trust you enough because I see the fruit in your life and I want that fruit in mine. So there you have it. So that is the quick fast track from our chaplain guest today, who is Heather Riley. I'm going to leave some links on this one for those of you to find even educational opportunities, you know, licensing opportunities where you could be ordained, all that kind of stuff. And then maybe even some leadership links, because that is a really cool aspect of this profession that we were able to uncover from this interview. So thanks for listening. And we will see you next time. Again, it's Chris Calvert from Career Goals. Taking care of business.